You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Since humans first looked at the sky and wondered whether anyone or anything was up there, we've asked the question, is there life elsewhere in the universe? The study of a single instance of extraterrestrial life, no matter how humble a, a microbe would be just fine, will deprovincialize biology. It will show us what else is possible. You know, even if the life out there is malevolent goo. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the blob. Or maybe just friendly, cuddly sorts of life. Whatever. We want to know if biology is unique to Earth or not. And we're building more sophisticated technology all the time that may help us answer that question. And if there is life, could there also be intelligent life? If so, and if we find it, how could we communicate? I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science. And one of the biggest of the big picture questions is, is there life in space? Are you going to put your reverb on that? Oh, is there life in space? Say, say, say. That's a better. There are a number of scientific projects that aim to answer that very question, from the rovers that are still making tracks on Mars to the radio antennas of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, to the telescopes that are hunting for planets orbiting other stars. Yep, no doubt about it. Discovering planets around other stars is one of the hottest research areas in astronomy. It doesn't seem so very long ago. I mean, it was 1995 when the astounding news came out of Switzerland that they'd found a planet around another normal star. What was astounding about the discovery that there was an extrasolar planet, there was a planet orbiting another star? Well, people expected there would be planets. That wasn't really what was so astounding. What was astounding was that we were looking for planets that were sort of like the ones in our own solar system that would take, you know, months or years to go around their sun. This one went around in a like 100 hours. It forced astronomers and and cosmologists to broaden their definition of extrasolar planet behavior. Yes, exactly, and modify their search techniques to, I don't know, expect the unexpected instead of expecting the usual. (laughs) And then the discovery started to roll in? Uh, They started more with a trickle, didn't they? They did. You know, you'd get every couple of months there'd be a new planet being found. Today, they find planets at the rate of like one a day or something like that. Well, when those new exoplanet discoveries began, when they really started to pile up about 2007 or so, and there were hundreds and hundreds of extrasolar planets that were announced. Science reporter Lee Billings was caught up in all of this excitement. It led him to write a book about the hunt for extraterrestrial life. He interviewed key scientists in a number of disciplines in astrobiology, and then his mood became split between feeling encouraged by the progress looking for E.T. and impatience that we may not make the discovery in our lifetime. His book, Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars, begins with a reference to the estimated life expectancy of life on Earth. From the birth of the Earth about 4.5 billion years ago, and extending out actually to the lower limit on current estimates for the longevity of our biosphere, how long life can last on Earth, which is about 500 million years. But you know, you round that off, you get 5 billion years. 
Well, what happens after 500 million years? Why does he give us only 500 million years left on this planet? Yes, well, that 500 million years comes from the fact that the sun, it, it'll still be around for another you know, 5 billion years, but every day it's getting a little brighter. And after a couple of hundred million years, it's going to get so bright that it actually destroys various cycles here on Earth that support the plant and animal life. No amount of sunscreen will protect us. Nope, not going to help us from an ever warmer sun. And as that happens, it will, you know, heat up the Earth and that will eventually boil the oceans. And that's going to happen way before it becomes a red giant. So, you know, when you look at the disappearance of the oceans, the disappearance of things like photosynthesis, uh, the carbon cycle on Earth, you get this number that might be as low as 500 million years. And to put that in perspective, that's basically like saying, you know, telling a 45-year-old person that they only have a year left to live. Well, that sounds kind of discouraging, but after all, we, we still have 500 million years and a lot could happen. In particular, we may find life elsewhere. Although I get the sense from Lee's book that he's a little discouraged himself that we haven't found anything in the first 50 years of SETI. I mean, is he encouraging me to give up my day job? Oh, I, I don't think you should give up at all. I, I think you should keep your day job. I think you should keep plugging away. I think they're out there. It's just a question of how far away they are. And uh, I, I, I guess I am I'm much more positive about the notion of there being other cosmic civilizations out there someplace than I am about uh, really our own future. I, I, you know, I think if you look at a lot of trends on our own planet right now, whether you're looking at the de destruction of the environment, the, you know, the plummeting biodiversity. Uh, there's all kinds of kind of grim reminders that uh, we, can, we can screw everything up quite well. And so when we look out to the stars, we're kind of looking for our own mirror images in a way. I mean, we're looking for aliens, but based on our own little sample here on Earth, based on our own behaviors. So we're kind of looking for ourselves. And if we're not only going to you know, survive as a big technological civilization for another century or 50 years or 1,000 years, that's pretty bad news if you're trying to communicate with someone who's 50,000 light years away, right? Well, it sounds like you're alluding to the famous last term in the Drake equation, L, That's that right. says that, look, the chances that you're going to find anybody are proportional to how long the average civilization keeps broadcasting into space. That should be self-evident if they go on the air and then 200 years go off the air because in you know, nuclear war or environmental degradation or something, the chances that you'll hear them are obviously much less than if they stay on the air for a million years. You're not so optimistic about us. But on the other hand, isn't there some cause for a, a bit sunnier view of SETI because of the discovery of planets around other stars? Well, this is really interesting, Seth, and I, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I, I actually think that I think that SETI's great, and I, uh, I fully support it, but I, I think that in terms of a hot area of research, it's its maybe a little, um, it's not as popular as it used to be. And I think that's partially because of the success of what I like to call exoplanetology, or what I like to call the exoplanet boom. So we've seen this huge explosion of discovery, and I think a lot of people who are, who are interested in these topics and who want to find life elsewhere, they see this all this progress, they see this boom, they see all the planets pouring out of the sky, and they think, you know, if we had to make a priority, if we had to make a choice, you know, thinking about someone, some young researcher out there who wants to go out and be the next Frank Drake, the founder of SETI, or wants to go out and find life around another star, you know, are they going to do that by, by listening with radio telescopes? Or are they going to push to find more planets, more Earth-like planets, and try to characterize their environments and atmospheres, for instance, through a really honking big space telescope? I think that the, the balance is kind of shifting here. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying this is what I observe when I, when I look out and I I survey things. Well, perhaps you could uh, expand on that a little bit because 
what I hear you saying is, look, we're finding lots of planets, and I think most people know that, okay? But the really important thing there is that most stars seem to have planets. So there are going to be a lot of planets where you could conceivably have intelligent life, and I don't understand how this might lead to being a downer for SETI. I mean, it isn't that there are a lot of people working here that, you know, would go look for planets if, if they could. I mean, it's a very small field. Right. Well, very true. I mean, it, people have this... Uh misconception, I think, that SETI is a, you know, multi-billion dollar research endeavor when in fact, you know, it's it, it hasn't been that ever really. It, you know, it's always been kind of a relatively small thing in comparison to uh, a lot of other areas of astronomy. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, one thing that SETI relies on when you're thinking about kind of traditional SETI, you know, pointing a radio dish someplace and looking for some kind of alien transmission or a beacon, that requires intention. That requires some beneficent super civilization devoting a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of power and energy and effort of beaming their presence out to the universe. Uh, so it requires intention. It requires a choice versus looking for life. You know, if you're, if you find an earth-like planet that's orbiting a nearby star and you have the right equipment, you have the right kit up in space, for instance, or a really big telescope on the ground, you can look at its atmosphere, at the reflected light of the star starlight off its atmosphere, you can see things like, you know, the signs of oxygen or, or methane, things that we equate here on Earth to life. Well, I, I certainly would agree with you that when it comes to looking for life, to look for, for example, microbial life, right. which might produce a lot of at, uh, atmospheric oxygen, as you say, uh, that that uh, obviously has a greater chance of success only because there might be many, many worlds where there's simple life because the conditions are harsh. Simple life can live on planets that you know, are just not too attractive for intelligent life. But on the other hand, I, I, I hope you're not saying that it isn't interesting, and to my mind, perhaps even more interesting, to look for intelligent life. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the way I see it, these things kind of fit together, you know, hand in glove. I, I think that the most interesting thing, and people, I, I had this conversation with Sarah Seeger, one of the um, uh, astronomers and researchers that I profile in the book. And, uh, you know, we had this conversation, this back and forth, where Sarah said, you know, what do you think is more interesting? If people find simple life around a star nearby or if people find intelligent life but it's in another galaxy and of course i think the question or you know the answer to that question is intelligent life even though the simple life could be very very close and can be studied in a lot more detail everyone wants something to talk to right we don't just want to find little little uh, paramecia or little single cells we want to find little green men we want to find you know, little reflections of us that we can have a conversation with. So I think that these things are, SETI is very important. Exoplanetology, the search for simple life is also very important. And I feel like, I feel like in terms of uh, placing your bets, it probably makes more sense to bet on the simple stuff first as a way to stimulate the, uh, you know, the investment that's required to go out and look for Captain Kirk in the, in the Starship Enterprise or, you know, Luke Skywalker and, and the Death Star, those kinds of things. <laughs> well, I certainly hear you there. You know, obviously, I'm going to defend SETI <laughs> a little bit because it's, it's such a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of this other effort. But you mentioned Sarah Seeger, and she's an MIT professor who works in uh, exoplanet research, planets around other stars. She also does work on the ground, as you found out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, you know, the book kind of goes into little profiles of some of these different researchers. And I, I basically tried to figure out what makes them tick. And uh, in Sarah's case, she told me a lot of really compelling stories just about her travels through the wilderness. I think she has a real, almost like kind of uh, frontiersman-like uh, urge to uh, go to kind of desolate, far away, remote places and, and explore them. 
looking for looking for life right here on Earth. <laughs> well, it, well, is she well is, is that what she's doing, or, or is she getting inspiration from simply observing up close on her own two feet a planet that does have a very diverse biota? Well, there you go. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you steered me back there because the the point of kind of telling some of those stories and the way that I tell that story in the book is, is essentially that you know we have to realize to some degree that. You know, the Earth is an exoplanet to every single star in the sky, except for one. So when you ask, what's it like to be in a habitable exoplanet? What's it like to be on a, an alien, on a habitable world? You have to look all around you. You have to look in the mirror. You have to go look outside your window. Because we are living on an exoplanet, in a sense. You, you know, what we see around us is an alien biosphere in many ways. Speaking of people that you've met who've been in the exoplanet biz, of course, you've also talked about uh, Jeff Marcy in your book, and you profile him uh, talking about some of the drama involved in the discovery of an exoplanet, or maybe not, called Gliese 581g. It's a planet around the star Gliese 581, and it isn't the first one to be found. It's still unclear whether it's a planet or not. How can you possibly have a situation like that? It is rather odd. So I'll, I'll explain a little bit. And I just want to say that Jeff Marcy's role in this, I think, is more as a critic. He was um, He's critical of this discovery, which was actually made by another team led by uh, Paul Butler and Steve Vogt and, and a couple other guys. So uh, when astronomers look for planets, there's various different methods they use. Most of them are indirect in that you're not actually looking and seeing the planet itself most of the time. What you're actually looking at is the star, and you're looking for the planet's effects on the star. In the case of Gliese 581g, uh, this is a, a putative planet that's orbiting a small, smaller than the sun, uh, red dwarf star, and it's orbiting in pretty close. And what we can see, or what what people who think the planet is real think they see is essentially this wobbling back and forth of the star itself as the planet pulls to and fro on the star as it's moving around in its orbit. And uh, the, the, the motion here is really quite slight. We're talking about on the order of a meter per second, but we're detecting that in you know a roiling ball of gas that we call a star from across 20 light years. So that's really impressive, and it's also really tricky to do. You have to look, you have to gather a lot of data, you have to look for a long time, and you have to run a lot of complex statistical analyses on the data to make sure that you're, what you're seeing is really a planet versus, for instance, a star spot or some kind of stellar noise. And so when you're dealing with these very, very small, barely statistically significant measurements, uh, naturally you're going to have some dispute over what's real and what's not. Now, the right answer is to look uh, more carefully, get better data. Um, but in some cases, it, we may be kind of pushing up against the limit of what our instruments can do. So the case is still out in terms of Gliese 581g. No one's really sure if it's real or not. Uh, the reason why it's so important, obviously, is that this is one of the first planets that was claimed to be found that could be habitable because it seems to be in the habitable zone of, of this star. So it could have liquid water on its surface. It seems to be the right size to hold onto an atmosphere. Um, but we still, the jury is still out, and uh, and Jeff Marcy has been playing a role in, I think, questioning, legitimately questioning whether or not that particular planet and a few other planets like it are actually real. Lee, when you were writing this book, you were quoted as saying that the book was less about the search for life beyond Earth and more about Earth itself and the degree to which it might be privileged or special, special Earth. Well, now that you've written the book, it's out there, uh, do you still consider that its focus? Uh, to some degree, yes. It's a question of not so much whether the Earth itself is special, but rather whether our time, our era, is special. And I think that's indisputable. I think if you look at the entire history, this 4.5 billion year history of the planet, 
nothing else like us has existed in the past. I mean, sure, you know, there used to be Neanderthals and other hominids in the relatively recent past that, uh, for whatever reason, all seem to have gone extinct and we're the only ones that are left. Nothing else ever developed thermonuclear weapons or interplanetary rockets or radio telescopes and things like that. So I, I do kind of think that we're at this unique and singular moment in time. And that's something that we should keep in mind, perhaps, as we look out into the cosmos and expect to see other things like us out there. Well, Maybe we won't find them. Well, let me follow up with that a bit, because I, I don't dispute at all the fact that we're living in special times. But I, I suspect that, you know, at the beginning of any century in recorded history, you probably would have said the same thing. You know, Bob, we're living in special times. A thousand years ago, you would have said, we're living in special times because because we've got these jousting contests. We have the Black Plague. We have all these special things. But okay. of course, a, a thousand years is is not even the blink of an eye in the lifetime of a planet. So okay. in the fullness of time, it's, you know, we can include, we can include the entire history of, of humanity in that special time. But then there is this strange acceleration, um, which you've talked about extensively, I think, in, in, in your presentations and talks in, you know, the modern era where we're, we're getting more and more capable. We're uh, doing all kinds of crazy things with information technology. There's an acceleration in our capabilities, and it's not really clear where we're going. So essentially, I, I think the real message of the book is, is not so much, you know, do we live on a special planet? It's rather, do we live in a special time? I think the answer is yes, we do live in a special time. The real question is, what will we do with that time? What will our choice be? And if you think about, again, at the very beginning of this conversation, we started talking about the lifetime of the Earth, the notion that we, in the fullness of planetary time, may only have this five billion year window in which life can persist on Earth. Um, so we have a window of opportunity in which we can essentially choose for the first time in the Earth's history, in the history of the biosphere, to extend life off planet and out into parts unknown, or we can stay here and we can die. Simple physics tells us that life on this planet is limited, and therefore we need to find a way to get off or do something with our time here to extend it. Well, clearly I think you share that thought with many people today, that uh, we're at a crucial juncture where we have to uh, either fix things or suffer the lugubrious consequences. Lee Billings, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure, Seth. Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars is Lee Billings' book. And in that discussion, he mentioned Frank Drake, the father of SETI, and we'll hear from Frank later on in the show. talked about the role of advanced technology in the search for life, and there are two whopping size telescopes that are being contemplated that are examples of just how building a better tool might be key to finding biology out there. It's life in space on Big Picture Science. Finding exoplanets, particularly those that could support life, is discovery. And discovery always benefits from new technologies. I mean, think when they could really build wooden ships that could cross the ocean. Suddenly we found all sorts of new stuff. So astronomers are doing that. And when it comes to exoplanets, one thing they want to do is develop a technology that would allow them to actually see them. All these exoplanets that we've discovered, we haven't seen any of them directly? Well, a few, but not many. I mean, we have sensed 
their effects. You know, they, they tug on their sun or something like that and cause it to wobble, or they block some of the light from their sun, and we see that, but we don't see the planets directly, almost never. I mean, it's sort of like going out into the desert, and, and you know, you hear a coyote, so you've discovered a coyote, but you don't see them because it's dark. It would be really more advantageous to know how far they were away by actually seeing them. Although I don't know if I want to see a coyote when I'm out camping. Better to see them than to have them see you. (laughs) But it's very difficult to see a planet directly when it's close to a bright star. Imagine trying to look at stars in broad daylight when the sun is out. And so it's very hard actually to see the planet itself. Well, it's just because the planets are dim. The planet is much dimmer than the star and sitting right next to it. So the combination of those two things makes it very difficult to see. It's sort of like trying to spot a firefly next to a searchlight. That's the analogy that's usually used. Yes, it is. And it requires some new optical techniques. Olivier Guillon is an astronomer at the University of Arizona, and he's building some apparatus that essentially allows you to block the light from the bright star so you can see the dim planet next to it. And this new equipment is going to be attached to the big optical Subaru telescope that's on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And if anyone can do this and make it happen, it would be Olivier Guillon. After all, he's a 2012 MacArthur Genius Fellow. But even if he is successful, and even if we are able to see planets far away, we wouldn't be able to see mountains or streams or a highway system. The planet would just appear as a little dot. So what's the point? Well, you can do two things. You can look at how that dot goes around the star, and so you can actually tell what the orbit of the planet is around the star, how long is the year, and how far is the planet from the star, so how how warm is it on the planet. And then the most interesting thing you can do is you can look at the color of that dot, Is it blue? Is there ocean? Is it white? Is it covered with clouds? Or maybe it's green. (laughs) So just the motion of the dot tells you something you can't learn easily any other way. But the color of it might indeed tell you something about the chances for biology. What about the composition of the atmosphere? Isn't that something you can also tell? Absolutely. If you have enough colors, if if you can decompose the light in enough colors, you can actually tell what the atmosphere is made of. Is there oxygen? Is there water? So even though you don't see any detail, we can learn an enormous amount about the possible habitability or even the habitation of planets around other stars if we could only get a little bit of light from them. What's required to do that? We have to find ways, technologies, that cancel the glare of the star uh, but let the planet light go through the, the optics that we build. And then we also have to work Uh, with a very clean image, and and one way to achieve that is to go to space. Well, that's a good point, because if I were aboard the International Space Station or in orbit somewhere, I could see, for example, I could see a solar eclipse any time I wanted to by just holding up a dime in front of the sun. You can't do that from the Earth because of scattering of the light in the atmosphere and so forth, but couldn't you do that with a space telescope, just have a little, you know, pinhead or something in front of the telescope, block the light from the star, and just see the planet that way? Almost. The problem is light is going to work its way around the dime because it's, it's waves and not particles. And so we have to uh, be a little more clever about how we build this, what you described, which is a form of optical system to cancel the light of the star. Well, just to throw a number in here, how much dimmer is a Earth-like planet around a typical star? It's about one billion, one billion times fainter. And it's about, it's about the ratio of brightness between a star at night and the sun in the daytime. Okay, so you've probably done the calculation here to figure out the sweet spot. You know, what kind of star is optimal for the kinds of experiments you're talking about where you actually can see these planets? Yes, and a lot of us have done this 
many times over as, as we tune our instrument parameter. So the, what we find is very interesting. If we're working in space where we can't, um, we can't afford a very large telescope, but there's no atmosphere, so the image is very still, the best stars are stars like the sun. Uh, so what we want to look at is planets around stars similar to the sun at maybe about 10 light years away from us. Now, if we're looking at the from the ground, where we can afford much larger telescope, but we have to deal with the atmosphere. We actually want to look at stars that are fainter than the sun. There's more of them, they're closer to us. And uh, the contrast is not, instead of being a billion to one, it's more like a million to one. Uh, but we need to look very close from to the star and, and the ground-based telescope being very large, they can do that. I see. So if you added up these two approaches, either looking at uh, very faint stars from the ground or somewhat less faint stars, stars like the sun from space, all within a reasonable distance so you have a chance of success. How many stars are we talking about here? I mean, are we, are we talking about thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of possible planets we could examine if we built this equipment tomorrow? It depends how big the telescope is, but for the next step, which we're thinking about in the next uh, one or two decades, we're really thinking about us looking at maybe the hundred closest stars to us, or neighborhood. So the nearest 100 stars. Okay, well, if life occurs on Earth-like planets, at least at the level of 1% of them, then in the next couple of decades, you might be the first person to find life in space. We're pretty sure that at least one star in 100 has a planet that's habitable. So if we can look at 100 stars, chances are pretty good that we'll pick something very interesting. So uh, this could be a big discovery. You could be, your name could be in the books for uh, you know, thousands of years. That, that's pretty exciting work. I, I, I hope that the aliens are friendly so that uh, <laughs> this is a positive discovery. Well, Olivier Guillaume, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you. Olivier Guillaume is an astronomer at the University of Arizona, and he works with the Subaru Telescope in Hawaii. The Subaru Telescope is a ground-based telescope, so when his advanced optics are attached to that telescope, he will be looking at the fainter stars. But these optical techniques will also be used on a space telescope yet to be named. Or yet to be built. Sometimes you name things before you build them. <laughs> Right? Maybe with children, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't think of building children, but... You can buy a kit. But Guillaume's apparatus, once it's put on telescopes, will indeed allow us to see these planets and analyze them, see if they have oceans and things like that. That might be a great indication of biology, but there's another proposed telescope that would go one step farther. Not just find life, but maybe intelligent life. Jeff Kuhn is a physicist. He's at the Institute for Astronomy in Honolulu. Everybody's in Hawaii. Yeah, so there's a lot of astronomy in Hawaii. Because you can get up on Mauna Kea and you have such an unobstructed view of space. Yes, it's above most of the atmosphere of the Earth. And it's also fairly far south, which is a good thing for astronomy in general, to be near the equator. You see more of the sky. Now he's working, Jeff Kuhn is working on a proposed project called Colossus. And you can guess by the title that this is an enormous telescope. Indeed, but it's a very specialized thing. It's going to look at planets too, but not in the way that Guillaume is talking about, where you could maybe find evidence for oceans or something like that. He wants to find evidence of advanced extraterrestrials. And when you're an advanced extraterrestrial, you like to build things. At least that's what we're assuming, particularly cities and other urban areas. And what do cities and urban areas give out? Uh, parking tickets, <laughs> but, yeah. but also heat. The idea is to look for the signature of their civilization that is the heat signature, the heat footprint. That That's the way that we look for a civilization. And the way we look for life in general is by 
using the bigger telescope to collect enough light to see, for example, oxygen in the atmosphere? Well, I understand looking for oxygen in the atmosphere, that would tell you, hey, you know, there, there must be something like photosynthesis down on a planet. But looking for the heat, I mean, how much heat would a society make, especially compared to the amount of energy falling on that planet from its own sun? I wouldn't imagine that the heat would amount to much. Well, in the case of the Earth, if we go back to Roman times, we produced one ten millionth of the heat just by campfires that uh, strikes the Earth from the sun. Today, in our civilization from coal and nuclear power, we produce one half of a tenth of a percent of that total energy. So it's really not insignificant, and of course it's growing. So could this new telescope that you're considering building, and it's called Colossus? Yes. Sounds like the Forbin project. Colossus. <laughs> okay. Could it detect New York City or, and its environs, for example, at a, at a distance of 50 light years if the aliens had the Colossus telescope? It wouldn't quite detect New York City, so we wouldn't really be able to see our civilization on a planet that's 60 light years away. A civilization that was maybe 20 to 50 years more advanced than us, yes, we would be able to see a big city like New York or the, the uh, environment of the boundary between, say, Southern California and the ocean. So what you're saying is that a society that's only slightly more advanced than we are will presumably be using a lot more energy than we are, and consequently radiating this heat signature into space that could be detected. That's right. It seems like the only thing that's really a measure of progress or the, the time as time, time marches on be, over the last, say, 200 years has been the increase in our appetite for energy. Now, it's possible that civilization changes its ways, but in reality, anything that we do, even manipulating the data in bigger computers, which are the information that society gathers, eventually require more power. People have tried to look for the heat signature of advanced societies. Uh, in particular, they've tried to look for what are called Dyson spheres or Dyson swarms, you know, big solar collecting panels that might surround their home star. If they've covered up a lot of their home star with these panels, then, you know, the back radiation, the heat coming off the back of these guys might be detectable. They haven't found any of that. Yeah, th those are civilizations that have to have the capability of surrounding their star, basically covering it with solar collectors and, and taking all of the energy and somehow making those panels orbit and making a big structure that can do that. The idea here is that if you apply that same concept, not to the star, but to the planet, and that's what Colossus would do, is look at the heat from the planet. And it depends on the idea that, that civilization clusters its heat, just like we do in cities or at the boundary between the ocean and, and coastlines. And as the planet rotates and as the planet orbits around the star, that modulation in the heat, which is radiated towards our telescopes a long way off, is a signal that we can look for. So it's something which is based on the idea that civilization will use the power from their star. In this case, it's the clustering of the power that's used on the planet that we look for. So fundamentally, Jeff, this is a SETI project. I mean, you're looking for highly advanced life. You're not looking for bacteria on some some world 20, 50 light years away, whatever. You're looking for advanced societies. How do you see this as stacking up against the, maybe I should call it conventional SETI approach, where we look for radio signals? They're complementary. I think that the idea of, of looking for beam signals or radio leakage is one approach to a problem that we really don't know how to solve yet. And the combination of techniques is required to cover the, cover the grounds for a problem which is terribly important but one which we don't yet 
know how to solve. Let's talk a little bit about the telescope itself. Uh, building a big telescope, how big is this telescope uh, in, in diameter? How big is the mirror? This is, this is a telescope that works at optical wavelengths. In other words, light as we generally think of it, except maybe more skewed toward the infrared, I suppose, if you're looking for heat. Right. So it's a telescope which is almost as big as a football field. And what makes it hard is that uh, to do optical observing, it has to, these mirrors or mirror segments have to be very precisely aligned. So to make it work, we've had to break some of the scaling laws, some of the relationships that make big telescopes difficult. The telescope isn't stiff like the other astronomical telescopes. So that allows us to give it a much smaller mass, which makes it in, in many ways much more affordable. Um, it's also not a general-purpose telescope in that it sees just a very tiny pencil beam of the sky, and that allows us also to make it for much less than the cost of a comparable-sized telescope that would be used for general astronomy. Well, no one disputes, certainly not in this building, nobody <laughs> disputes the importance of finding not only life out there, but intelligent life. Uh, after all, that's one of the things we've been doing for a long time. But the big problem with SETI today, and this is a worldwide problem, is money. It's very difficult to find even small amounts of money to do SETI experiments. Do you think it's feasible that you'll be able to raise that money to do yet another SETI experiment? Well, I, I think that, that what we've learned over time is that if we go back 150 years, that the world's largest telescopes have all been built by private foundations and by private money governments and big organizations of astronomers have never built the world's largest telescopes. They've relied on philanthropy and individuals with a, a desire and a passion to do this problem. So in this case, we're not looking to governments or to large astronomical organizations to support this. This is a, a specialized program, as you say. It's aimed at detecting life in the universe or at least our cosmic corner of the galaxy. And it will succeed based on probably just a few individuals that are, have a burning passion to solve this problem. Jeff Kuhn, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Jeff Kuhn is a physicist at the Institute for Astronomy in Honolulu. Well, detecting alien civilizations is one thing, but communicating with the aliens themselves is another. Coming up, what our finned friends can tell us about alien languages. It's Life in Space on Big Picture Science. Okay, so an alien walks into a bar, and the bartender says, what'll you have? Hang on, hang on, I've heard this one. No, actually, I have not heard this one. Okay, and the alien doesn't respond because he doesn't speak the bartender's language. Could be the accent. In the other version of the joke, the alien orders a beer, but the bartender doesn't understand him because he doesn't speak Zork. So the point that you're making is that if we do make contact with species off this planet, we should offer them a beverage, an alcoholic beverage? Well, no. The, the point is that he or she or it may not speak human, unlike in Hollywood movies and TV where they always speak elegant English. Not only that, often British English. Is that true? Yeah, often. Think of Michael Rennie. I came here to give you these facts, but if you threaten to extend your violence... This earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. And this matter of what language we would use, if any language, to communicate with extraterrestrials is something that SETI researchers have discussed for years. As it is, there's an example of alien language on this planet that could provide some clues, namely the chatter between non-human animals, even if it's not language as we know it. 
Behavioral biologist Denise Herzing doesn't know if the sounds that dolphins use to communicate with each other qualify as language per se, but it is an example of complex communication within an intelligent species. Denise is research director of the Wild Dolphin Project. Denise, everybody knows that dolphins are intelligent, or at least we're told that dolphins are intelligent. What is it about their behavior that uh, indicates that they really have a high IQ? Well, in fact, by physical measures, we believe they're intelligent. For example, they have a high brain-to-body ratio called encephalization quotient, so they pass the physical measures for intelligence. Behaviorally and cognitively, they pass all sorts of tests for uh, language understanding, for abilities to imitate, to mimic, and to learn vocally, and they understand abstract concepts, so two-dimensional images versus three. Well, how do you know that? I mean, what, what kind of a test would you give a dolphin to, to prove that they, they do these things? Well, most of the intelligence work has actually been done in captivity because you can do controlled experiments. So, for example, they would train a dolphin to understand a gesture like a sign language gesture for an object like ball, hoop, diver, fetch. So there would be an activity in an object. So you would give the dolphin a command, take the ball and swim it through the hoop. And then the dolphin would either do that activity correctly or not, then you would change the word order, take the hoop to the ball, swim it over to the ball. So if they understand the meaning of the words and their relationship, they would do that activity correctly. So those are true experimental tests that have been done in captivity. Okay, so they are intelligent. They vocalize. They make lots of noises. Are these noises really some sort of language, or are they like the noises, I don't know, horses make? It doesn't sound to me like that. That's really language. They're just trying to give you one bit of information like feed me or get out of the way or something like that. Well, dolphins have a complicated communication system. We do not call it language at this point because language entails a lot of things like displaced activities, uh, syntax, grammar, and we just haven't decoded their communication system in that detail. But we do know, for example, that they have names for each other, which are technically words, so that it's referencing something. So we call that referential communication. Can you give me an example of, uh, of somebody's name? <laughs> <laughs> well, they have whistles. So whistle A is the dolphin named Stubby, and whistle B is, is the dolphin named Little Gash. And so a dolphin can broadcast his or her name, in general, and it can also call another dolphin by its name, but it also encodes part of its own whistle when they're calling someone else, so they know it's Little Gash calling Stubby versus Stubby just broadcasting his signal. So that's as close as we know that dolphins have words. So the bottom line is they can communicate. We don't know whether it rises to the standards of being a language, you know, with syntax or whatever, but they, they have sophisticated communication ability. Do we have any way of uh, communicating with them? I mean, they can communicate among themselves, but can they communicate with us or can we communicate with them? You know, there is a history of humans trying to communicate with dolphins uh, since the 1960s. And over the last 40, 50 years, what we've seen is a greater understanding of the dolphins' own signals. They're in my case, wild societies and how they really learn and teach and what signals they use for their own communication. So now we're actually at a point where we can inject technology to bridge that gap, to give them the tools to potentially communicate back. What sort of technology are you giving them? I mean, are you giving them <laughs> PA systems? What? Well, in the late 1990s, we realized out in the area where I work in the Bahamas that the dolphins were actually showing us signals that they were interested in communicating because they interact with us and they were 
it was like they were reaching out and trying to do more with us. And it's one of the few places in the world where dolphins are both interactive and natural. You know, they do their own thing, but they seem to have social time for us humans that are researching them. So what we're doing is building an underwater wearable computer with some colleagues at Georgia Tech. And basically, it's a completely acoustic system. So what we're doing is we're labeling objects like a piece of seaweed or a scarf, which is an object that dolphins like to drag in the water, and they play games with these objects. We're giving those whistles, so they have names. So there's a whistle for scarf, a whistle for seaweed. And we know that dolphins can match whistles with objects. That's been done in captivity, and then they can use them appropriately to request things from researchers. So we're pairing that in the wild, and we've got a really nice um, real-time sound and pattern recognizer in the computer so that if the dolphins mimic the whistle, such as to request an object from humans, they'll get it, and then we can all play games. So we're trying to bridge the gap by giving them a tool that they can use and that we can understand sufficiently in real time in the water to honor their request for what they want to do. So in other words, you're teaching them words for specific things, for specific objects. Here, this scarf, and that's... Right. Whatever it is, right, right, <laughs> and the, and the dolphins then can match the you know the object and and the whistle, right. And it's not exactly teaching. Uh, what has the only thing that has worked working with other species is a system where you model a, the communication system. So this has been done with Irene Pepperberg's work with African gray parrots, and uh, bonobo chimps. And the idea is that another species just doesn't automatically understand what you're trying to teach them. So what we do as humans in the water is we use the system with each other. So if you and I were in the water, Seth, you know, you would request the object from me using the same whistle, and the dolphins would observe us using the system. I'd give you the scarf, we'd play, we'd have fun. And if the dolphins wanted to get in the game, they could also mimic the whistle, and then we would know it was them, and we'd give them the object or the scarf to play with. So it's really empowering the dolphins to see how a system works, what they can get out of it by doing the correct thing. And it's a tool. It's a tool to sort of get in there and do something together. It's been said for a long time that there's a very close relationship between SETI, looking for signals that would tell us that somebody out there is pretty clever, and dolphins, <laughs> dolphin research. In fact, in the very earliest days of SETI, there was something called the Order of the Dolphins. And, right. <laughs> right? SETI scientists all, all had little dolphin pins on their lapels or whatever. Uh, because, look, if you're going to consider the possibility of getting in touch with extraterrestrials, you know, here are some, here's another intelligent species right here on Earth, and we should learn how to communicate with them. And as far as I can tell, we haven't been enormously successful at this. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't see books being co-authored by dolphins or anything <laughs> like that. So, so has this gone anywhere, or was this? Is it? Is the idea that their brains, their methods of communication are similar enough to us? Is that just nutty? Well, look, SETI searches for radio signals and optical signals, and clearly, you're looking for technological societies, which dolphins aren't, and many species probably aren't on this planet, and if they exist elsewhere. But the way dolphins can really be a model for SETI and an exercise is specifically because they are non-human intelligence. So they are about as alien as you can get with a social mammal on this planet. So it might be a good exercise just to see how they show their intelligence, how we might measure it if we ever run into it, you know, in real time at least. You know, secondly, we have some things in common with signal detection and decoding. You know, we have trouble getting dolphin signals and trying to figure out what they mean and how to measure them and how to categorize them. So I think that's another parallel between uh, dolphin research and SETI. And then finally, you know, if we would ever have direct contact, you know, how do you interact with another species of intelligence? How do you recognize it? What's the etiquette? And that's a really good exercise, at least 
you know, in our case, when we work in the wild, that's been critical to our research is being proper in the water, knowing how to behave ourselves, and then letting the dolphins show us what they want to show us about their society. So, you know, I think there are parallels. Again, they're not technological, and they're not going to build transmitters or receivers, but they do a lot of that cool stuff themselves biologically. So I think it's a good exercise. And do you see progress? Do you think that we'll ever get to the point of being able to really talk to the dolphins and have them talk back? You know, that's a really good question. I'd like to think so. I think it's really going to depend on, of course, our tools and how creative we are and how much leeway we give the dolphins to go there with us because it's kind of, it's up to us to create the tools, but it's up to them to use them. So we have to figure out how to make dolphin-friendly tools and we'll see what they want to show us. They might just say, so long, you know, not interested, you guys are boring, whatever. We don't want to talk or communicate, but... You know, I think I think it has that potential, but I think it's going to take a few decades or centuries. <laughs> Denise Herzing, thank you so much for uh, talking with me. You're very welcome. Denise Herzing is a behavioral biologist and the research director of the Wild Dolphin Project. And her work, and that of other animal behaviorists and biologists, interest scientists who are not just looking for intelligent life off this planet, but are a step ahead wondering how we might communicate with it. Astronomer Frank Drake was the first to do a modern SETI experiment 50 years ago. Frank, we heard how understanding how dolphins communicate uh, maybe could be useful for our SETI experiments. Oh, certainly it could be very useful. We do know that dolphins produce very complicated vocalizations, as we call them, that sound like speech of some kind as do um, other related species such as whales, many kinds of whales and such. If we could understand this language, it would give us an idea of what the language might be of other non-terrestrial intelligent creatures and would help us to recognize that such creatures are intelligent and also get a feel for how sophisticated their civilization is and their ability to deal with one another. Frank, you did the first SETI experiment, the first modern SETI experiment in 1960 in West Virginia. And shortly thereafter, there was formed amongst those who were interested in this line of research something called the Order of the Dolphins. And while I'm tempted to say that sounds like something that shouldn't be on a restaurant menu, what is the, <laughs> what is the Order of the Dolphins? Uh, the Order of the Dolphins developed from a meeting, as you mentioned, of a group of 12 pretty eminent scientists who were very interested in the subject of extraterrestrial intelligence and how we might find it. Among those people was Dr. John Lilly, who had become famous at that time for pursuing the idea that dolphins had a language. And at that meeting, he presented some pretty impressive uh, results of this research. And because of that, when this group decided to remain in touch with one another, they needed a name. And so they just chose, uh, because of the excitement that the dolphin talks of Lily had produced, to choose the name The Order of the Dolphin. Dolphin research has been important, uh, certainly has implications for SETI, at least in terms of communication. But dolphins have also been important in terms of judging whether evolution will frequently produce intelligent beings. Just because you have a lot of planets with life doesn't mean that a lot of them are going to develop intelligence. But dolphins have given us some insight into that, I think. Uh, yes, I think so. And uh, there's actually confusion about this in the scientific world. There are people who 
make an argument, which I think is totally false, that if you look out in the history of the Earth, there's been only one intelligent species that could communicate at the level we can. And doesn't that mean that high intelligence with the ability to communicate is very rare? And I think that's quite wrong because we do look at other creatures, the dolphins, the whales, the elephants even, the orangutans, the baboons, and the chimpanzees, and they are very close to us in their abilities to communicate and to think, if you will. And uh, what this says is that, it says to me anyway, it says that evolution selects for ever greater intelligence because it is very beneficial to survival and that many lines of animals are, are evolving towards intelligence and will become intel as intelligent as we are someday. But one of them is always first. They don't all go at the same rate. And we happen to be first. And we shouldn't be surprised that there's only one intelligent species on Earth. I think if we disappeared in a very short time on the cosmic time scale, a million years, two million years, there'd be new, a new species of intelligence equal to ours. Well, that's encouraging in a way. If we disappear, we can be replaced. We are replaceable. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Drake, thank you so very much for talking with us. You're welcome. Frank Drake is an astronomer at the SETI Institute. So you're encouraged that we can be replaced. Well, I mean, I don't know, maybe not. But there is something comforting about the idea that if we do self-destruct, Earth will probably have another intelligent species to at least study what we did. The brainiest of the squirrels will rise up and, and take your place. I've heard Frank Drake himself say it will be the raccoons. <laughs> I mean, they are clever. Thanks to our sometimes alien but always intelligent production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Google, Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to life in space. Hit it, reverb. Ace, 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 and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. While you're online, you may want to check out and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's found on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, it feels more intelligent, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know that you like the show. Zo. Nako Larku Bar. Shorg Flibu dis with Snaku Bartender Gis. What do you have? Un Shalix Kor Glamo Binjorad. We don't serve Shukabahi Gag. <laughs> 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 <laughs>